Tonight on This is Vinyl Tap, Genghis Kong, American Pie, the Canadian River, and a fire in Joshua Tree. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. Tonight, we've got a very big band and a hugely influential record. And we got quite a bit to talk about because we're bringing two two sounds that are coming together to make something absolutely new. And there's some, uh, there's some things that are similar to this, to other uh, things we've already done. I'm going to be asking these guys this question. Tonight we're doing the giant album, Sweetheart of the Rodeo, by the giant band, The Birds. What does this band have in common with the Willie Nelson podcast we did? They're both country albums. I'm going to give you a hint. Trigger. Oh, is uh oh, I still don't both, know. Both <laughs> have a very unique guitar sound that you can recognize immediately. Ah. Ah, yeah. What does this have to do? <laughs> what does this have in common with the Wilco Sunbolt album war we had? Well, that's an easier one because it it's is. that it's that that the idea the elements of um of combining rock and country and r&b into something unique um this was sort of the four for this album was a forerunner or forebearer of of most of that stuff um and heavily influenced uh at least sunvolt and to a certain extent wilco until they decided to well, skid off yeah, Uncle Tupelo, but uh, until Wilco started to skid off into the nethers of unlistenable nonsense. In the time <laughs> of the Corona-19 uh, pandemic, we can use that as an analogy. I think the uh, uh, Sweetheart of the Rodeo was the first shot and Uncle Tupelo was the second shot. When the Bible is a bottle and the hardwood floor is home when morning comes twice a day or not at all If I break into will you put me back together And this puzzle's well, figured out I, I'm going to disagree slightly, Doug, if I okay. can There's a couple of things that um, 
are are lost in the lore of this album and the lore of Graham Parsons, who we'll talk about in depth probably throughout this thing. One is uh, the birds were already dipping their toe in country music prior to going full blown country when this album came out. I mean, Chris Holman, who is a member of the band uh, and was on this album, obviously uh, was recording country songs on their albums prior to this. Uh, so, so Gene Clark also did country influenced songs that were different than the things that Roger McGuinn was, was doing. Um, and then also prior to this album was, was a band that Parsons did. Graham Parsons did, uh, had a band called the international submarine band where they attempted to do this. Where I got chores to keep me busy, a clock to keep my time, a pretty girl to love me with the same last name as mine. When the flowers wilt, a big old quilt to keep us warm. As well, meld R&B and, uh, and, and rock and country. That album didn't go anywhere. So this album is part of the lore of being the, 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 the forerunner of all that stuff. But he had already attempted this once a year before. Uh, people point to this album, the beginning of the country folk deal that later influenced so many people. But uh, I think before I get to that, uh, I need we need to establish who the birds are and how big of a deal they are. Um, this is their sixth album. Their first album, uh, Mr. Tambourine Man, went to number six. That was the debut album, went straight to number six. The second one, Turn, 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 went to 17. The third one, Fifth Dimension, went to 24. Younger Than Yesterday, the fourth album went to 24, and the Notorious Bird Brothers went to number seven on the Billboard. So you're talking from 65 to 68, a lot of albums, a lot of hits, and a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. uh, Tony, you were speaking earlier before we started about the, the cross-Atlantic uh, rivalry that was going on and how important the birds became over on the other side of the pond yeah i mean the the uh the birds it's weird to think about this when you talk about the beatles because the beatles everyone talks about how influential they were on everything but the birds influenced the beatles tremendously um if i needed someone w was a, a direct response to what the birds were doing um you know, because their sound was so unique that that 12 string Rickenbacker that uh, and Jam can probably speak to that significantly more than I can because he's a musician. I'm just a lover of musicians <laughs> or music, I should say, not musicians, yeah. <laughs> uh, although I do love you, Jam. Yeah. Uh, Thank you. But, but, you know, that 12 string Rickenbacker that that Roger McGuinn was playing on their stuff just sound didn't sound like anything else at the yeah. time. And I've really got a question for you, Tony. This is going to be very important. Um, I've been amiss in letting Tony get away with quite a bit of his inside vocabulary. In the last uh, podcast featuring Rush, I uh, forced Tony to finally tell us what prog rock was. There's another term he uses very often. Jangly guitars. <laughs> Tony, you're not going to get through this one without defining jangly guitars. Uh, oh Lord. Um, uh, it's kind of like the what the um, 
who was it that said about the, the Supreme Court justice said about pornography? I know it when I see it. I know it when I hear it. Um, it's just <laughs> it's, it's usually <laughs> kind of open arpeggio type of stuff. It's yeah. um it's real. It's big on the high end. It's um. It's I. I just. It sounds like bells tinkling. That's why they call it jangly because it sounds jangly. I mean, it's a perfect word to describe it. There's I'm another can- reason they call it that. Why is that? <laughs> the first album <laughs> is where it got its name from. The oh, fans. Okay. The jingle jangle morning. I'll come following you. Oh, I had really. I had, I had, I had no idea. That. And that that um. At least that's what I read. I wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, I was barely born when that happened. But that, I've heard that uh, Mr. Tambourine Man, Bob Dylan song that they took. And uh, mm-hmm. he let's talk about his Rickenbacker real fast before we move on. Well, the Rickenbacker yeah, 12 string that. Yeah, the Rickenbacker uh, 12 string is very uh, it was probably the go to 12 string guitar in the. Uh, late 60s, early 70s. And you can even hear uh, guys like um, Tom Petty uses a Rickenbacker 12-string. And there's two models, uh, or there's two types of Rickenbacker 12-strings. One's the uh, the hollow body, which is probably the more famous one. And that's the one that um, Roger McGowan plays. And then there's the solid body one, which it uh, has a little bit more... Um, of a sounds a little bit more like an electric guitar at in a hollow body 12 string uh electric electric 12 string is going to sound have a little bit more of an acoustic kind of sound to it um they're also uh supposed to have kind of a warmer sound so you uh the and that's i think that's what we're getting to i don't know that anybody really in rock was playing a Rickenbacker hollow body 12 string at that time. Well, there, there was w- one guy who was playing it and uh, he influenced uh, Roger and that was uh, uh, George Harrison. Right. He was using mm-hmm. one on Hard Day's Night and that got his attention. And then when they went in to record this first album, they <laughs> went to a studio that was used by classical musicians and the engineers were scared to death of what they were going to do to their instruments. And they turned up the compression really high and the birds liked the way it sounded. So they turned it up more. Huh. And then somebody told him to try this uh, treble booster thing. I can't remember who it was, another famous rock person. And he liked that. And that kind of became their, their sound was uh, mm-hmm. high compression. And then it turned into jangly guitars. Somebody nicknamed it that. And, it influenced a bunch of people. We said Tom Petty. You can't get Tom Petty to talk about his influence without bringing up the birds. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not just his, his guitar sound, but it's also his early, early as vocals. I mean, he's like a, almost as early stuff's almost a karma copy of Roger McGuinn stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but the other other kind of really big part of the bird sound was this kind of choral vocals they did. Just this mm-hmm. really, really like layered harmony, not in the same way the Beach Boys, it was a different type of harmony, but it was such an important part of their sound.
They had, yeah. they had four guys in the band that could sing, <laughs> you yeah. know, all of them were songwriters. All of them could sing. Your favorite guy, Doug, was in the band, David Crosby. <laughs> and, um, and I may have to say something nice about him because everybody said that he was the one that knew the trick with the harmony. He could he could sing. He could sing the harmony that made the other guy sound so good. Yeah. But yeah, th- these guys were these guys were a big, big band. Big. I mean, they were the American Beatles, essentially, um, you know, uh, you know, and considered fairly serious musicians in terms of rock musicians. And they did things, you know, they they their music progressed. I mean, when they got to things like Eight Miles High, which was this sort of electronic, weird psychedelia thing. Again, there wasn't a whole lot of people doing stuff that that kind of noise yeah. rock at the time. Not only was it, it was that's, I think that may be the first or the best use of a 12 string in a, for a guitar solo. I know the Beatles did some, but every time I hear 12 mile or eight miles high, I'm just always surprised at the, it's one of the coolest sounds in the world. Yeah. Well, here's the, you know what inspired that? No. Fear of flying. No, they were listening to John Coltrane nonstop in this band. And (laughs) I can uh, see that. They just, he said, I'm going to try to get that sound with my guitar. And he started working on, that and that's yeah. what that opening lead is. Um, it's a Damn. it's an attempt to copy Coltrane. Well, and what's so weird about us focusing so much on the vocals and the guitar sound is that both are so absent from the album we're talking about tonight. <laughs> that's 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 so true. I, and I want to get to the album we're talking about tonight, but I just gotta get you to uh, let's list some hits that everybody knows. So that, just to put this band in perspective. Well, their their big their big sort of claim to fame early on was they took Dylan songs and 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 rock and rolled them up and popped them up. So they would they would do you know it's funny uh, they were such a big deal. There is a term for for their songs called birds bird songs. That's what they call. There's a classification of what they sounded like. They call them bird songs, and that's what that's what McGuinn would do. He would take a a, a petty. I mean, sorry, take a Dylan song and. Uh, and rock it up a little bit, add harmonies to it, cha- change mm-hmm. the uh, change the phrasing of it, and it, they'd have a hit off of it. But yeah, they uh, you know, turn 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 was a huge huge hit of theirs. Um, as you mentioned, Mr. Uh, Mr. Tambourine Man, um, turn, turn, turn was a Pete Seeger folk song Yeah, that he actually, he, he changed the time signature of all these folk songs to four, four. So they'd be good rock and rock and roll. So Pete Singer actually said that after he heard their version, he switched to singing it their way. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's yeah. funny. It's funny because, you know, McGuinn is the guy people think of when they think of the birds. Obviously, his guitar is influential. But, uh, you know, Gene Clark was the guy who brought these originals to the band that were just out- outstanding, outstanding yeah. songs, you know. Um, and my favorite one is... <laughs> 
Feel a whole lot better. Yep. Yeah, who made great, that? Who who did a great cover of that? Tom Petty. Tom That's Petty. Right. Yeah. So great I mean, but it, I mean, he wrote he Gene Clark wrote Eight Miles High. You know, he he was kind of responsible for bringing that the the originals up a couple of notches. And then Chris Holman, from his background, he he brought in sort of a country influence stuff. Um, you know, and as you mentioned earlier, David Crosby was able to to kind of figure out the harmonies and layer all that stuff. Um, yeah, this was this was this band was a big deal. Um, and yeah, yeah. And it, the 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 album that they made just before Sweetheart of the Rodeo was um, so different from uh, anything that they'd done really. I think before or since it was the, when they were starting to mess around with synthesizers they had a there's actually on the extended version of the notorious burrito brother or notorious bird brothers um there's a song called move raga Just uh, Roger McGinn having fun with the Moog synthesizer he got hold of. Uh, you know, they haven't the hippiest song you can probably imagine, of course, written by David Crosby, Dolphin's Smile. just so the the they were one of the things where they were kind of yeah they were these pop sensations but they were also uh, heavily influenced by the beatles and that they were expanding their sound as well and so that's what makes this sweetheart of the rodeo album just a uh you can't believe that they took this turn well it, it's funny that you mentioned that moog raga song because that was a whole impetus of of the the start of Sweetheart of the Rodeo was Roger McGuinn wanted to make a double album tracing American music in the 20th century. So starting with like traditional yeah. mountain music, going all the way up through bird songs and then ending with this kind of space age jam stuff that would represent the future. So past, present and future. Yeah. And uh, but at the time, this album was when they were starting to record this album, they were only down to two original members. I mean, David yeah. Crosby had left, Gene Clark had Gene left, Clark, Michael yeah. Clark had left. Um, yeah, Chris Holman and Roger McGuinn. <laughs> Michael Clark you know? was not having any fun at the yeah. end of his stint. Well, and what what we've done in the first part of this uh, podcast so far is explain to everybody what a big deal they, they were. And it's if you want to know how big of a deal they are, they're the only band we've talked about so far that made it into Don McLean's song, American Pie, uh, where it says uh, uh, that song has the Beatles, the King, Bob Dylan, all the big ones. And for the Richie Valens and yeah, Buddy Hopper. Holly, of course. Buddy Holly. And so 
for the birds, it's that line eight miles high and falling fast. So they are a big deal. And as they just said, we're down to two guys left in the band and someone's going to walk into this band. <laughs> and it's one of the most confusing <laughs> things I have ever come across. Uh, Tell us about it. Well, I, I got to think I got to think that Roger McGuinn was at some sort of low point because I don't know how you get a guy uh, who had an album yet to be released come into your band hired as a piano player we're talking about Graham Parsons and in, yeah. and just completely change the direction of what you were going to do completely yeah. rewrite the direction of what you're going to do uh think about this he's the only guy in the band that has original songs on this album the only guy and he's yeah. he's an upstart that just he was in the band for 4 months and he has enormous <laughs> self-confidence at one point he said he thought they needed to change the name to graham parsons and the birds <laughs> and that's um, we're talking about a hugely popular yeah. band with a 21 year old nobody walking in like they own the show it's just yeah. hard for me to understand i agree roger, uh, roger mcquinn must have been somewhere else or had his mind on something else Mm -hmm. All right. So now we got to talk about Graham Parsons because this is a crazy story and we got to go yeah. fast because we could there's yeah. so much written and and so many documentaries on this guy. Yeah. Who, who only lived to be 26 years old. It's it's unbelievable. Well, he is probably the one of the most interesting people in popular music. Uh, he was for those who don't know, he was born in into one of the wealthiest families in Florida. His mom's uh, father owned a bunch of orange groves in uh, or land where they uh, started growing orange trees. And that land got bought and they still got to I think they still they still get to live on it or something. But somehow they were they he was They're born into rich. They were crazy rich. They were they somehow had that. It was at Tropicana or yeah. one of the orange juice companies. They made Tropicana, one of those places. Yeah, yeah. And so he was educated, one of the high, very highly educated. He went to one of the most prestigious uh, prep schools you could go to in the country. Uh, got into Harvard and <laughs> stayed there for a while, and then discovered country music and basically just. Uh, went on some sort of pilgrimage to create the best, to blend country music with uh, R&B and rock. Yeah, and well, he, he was a he was a folky first, which I think all, all of these guys all were. All these guys were, until they, they were, were the folky. Beatles. <laughs> yeah, um, but you're right. He, he, had, he had this weird vision of, you know, c combining country and really R&B, because rock is an offshoot, you know, at that time was an offshoot of rhythm and blues music. Country and R&B and, um, and, and making something completely unique from it. And it's not countryfying a song. It was creating something new, at least in his mind. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, and, most of the people in that crowd had a lot of contempt for country music. They right. had a lot of ignorance of it and a lot of contempt for it, even though there was some very good country music out there. We're not well, talking about the stuff that's on the radio now with the sexy tractors. We're talking about uh, a very different sound. But but there was I mean, and you're right in terms of fans, but the musicians didn't feel that way. I mean, the Beatles covered Buck Owens. 
you know yeah uh the birds on their on their second album covered a porter wagner song satisfied mind uh, which oddly enough was recorded by the international submarine band two years later same song uh but uh there was some crossover i mean you know johnny cash had dylan on his on his television show i mean the musicians didn't have an issue with it it was the fans that had a problem so you're right rock fans had a weird relationship with country and country music fans hated the long hairs they hated the hippies yeah Yeah. uh and and if you want to find out more they thought the rock guys smoked pot and their guys did it (laughs) yeah right (laughs) little did they know little did they know yeah um so anyway if you want to find out more about um graham parsons there's a great book by who is it bim fong torres wrote really good book about him and there was there was a documentary based on that book uh, his his life and death are fascinating i mean his death is one of the most fascinating I, <laughs> in, in, in rock and roll that's the I'll, joshua tree yeah uh, miss incident i'm uh, i'm gonna throw out another book if you can find it only because it's 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 interesting and in that it's a collection of interviews and stuff with people who knew him as well as interviews from him but it's also compiled and written by a guy in one of my favorite bands, Sid Griffin of the Long Riders, who loves the birds and loves Grant Parsons and has a real affinity towards the stuff and has written lots of stuff. He published a book in the 80s that was republished in the 90s, and it's just called Grant Parsons, a musical biography, and it's full of great interviews with people who knew him. And 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 Sid Griffin is is um He's written liner notes for a lot of re-releases of Graham stuff and Bird stuff. I mean, he's a really well-researched guy about this stuff. So uh, his book is also really, really good, and it's more first-person account than a than a uh, in terms of interviews and stuff. Um, mm. That's a good All one right. as well. Well, we've been doing this for about two hours now. We better get into the album, and this <laughs> isn't like that Rush album with only three songs on it. We've got a, <laughs> we got thirty-two minutes of music and. Uh, a lot of a lot of good songs to talk about. Uh, first of all, is this album cultural appropriation? <laughs> Why do you ask that? Why do you that's ask that? that's well, do we question. not have a bunch of California hippies coming in here to uh, appropriate country <laughs> music for their own purposes? Uh, have you seen the people that play on this album? Yeah, they got little. Pretty much, it. they have little rectangle glasses and long hair. <laughs> and they smoked the marijuana. Hey, you know, you forgot to mention why we can talk about this because Earl pulled balls on this album and he lives yeah. in Austin, Texas, and is uh that makes us experts on this, right, Doug? <laughs> I did forget that. I apologize. Usually I tell her about why we're such experts, but I forgot this <laughs> evening. We're a little um, we're still a little torn up here in Austin, Texas, because we just had the giant uh Texas freeze out where temperatures dropped to six degrees in Austin, Texas, and everyone lost their power and, and their water not, and their water <laughs> yeah, and their water. It, yeah. it was seven days of 30 degrees inside the house. And we're not used to that. And uh, <laughs> now we're all running around figuring out who to blame. So yeah, <laughs> Texas strong, go blame someone. Um, the, uh, I was joking about cultural appropriation. I know you were I bring that in there, but they did go to Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> to record this record and they played at the opry what happened oh lord well they they were supposed to they were supposed to uh do two songs on the opry i don't i don't know if they did both of them or not but one of the songs they were supposed to cover was um uh sing me back home by merle haggard 
And yeah. uh, and Tom Paul Glazer and the Glazer brothers were the hosts of the Opry show at the time. It was a little 30-minute Opry show. And so uh, he's talking up Graham and everything, and Graham's up there, and he says, so you're going to sing us some Roll Haggard song, aren't you? And Mer- and uh, and uh, Graham says, you know, my grandmother was a big influence on me. She's in the crowd. I'm going to sing a song I wrote about her. And so he jumps into Hickory Wind. The other guys <laughs> evidently didn't know he was going to do that, but they went along with it. And uh-huh. uh, and man, Paul, uh, Tom Paul Glazer and the Glazer brothers are jumping up and down in the, on the side. And and uh, Roy <laughs> Acuff is stomping his feet and screaming about it because you just don't do that at the opera, right? <laughs> Um, great the, night ship over there. Yeah. And what was so funny about it was prior to them going on, I mean, the, the crowd was fairly, um, respectful, but there were evidently cat calls, people yelling, you know, where's your dress and go cut your hair and, you know, all this other stuff because they're the birds, <laughs> even though their hair wasn't super long at the time and they're wearing suits. Uh, they were still quote unquote long hair hippies, but yeah, the, the Opry appearance did not go down very well with the, uh, traditional country people. Surprise, surprise. Well, they, yeah. what, they wouldn't even let uh, what the Hank Williams didn't even uh, do too well. He got in trouble and they wouldn't let Bob Wills on because he had drums. Yeah, so I think uh, Johnny, Johnny Cash was also fired from the Opry at one point. Yeah, it's yeah. not um, it's it's not an easy place to play. No. And mm-hmm. anyway, let's get on to this record. We've got um, we got to we start out with my favorite song on the album which uh you ain't going nowhere i don't care how many letters they said the morning came the morning went pack up your money pick up your tent you ain't going nowhere Every time I hear this song, I think of Bob Dylan. <laughs> uh, yeah, probably because he wrote it. Um, <laughs> this, you know how they, you know how they, how they came came across this? I know. Because this song wasn't released when they yeah, recorded it. They, right. Because they were Columbia, they were Columbia Records artists. They had access to these unreleased recordings of Dylan and Chris Hillman and Roger McGuinn found the song and loved it. And they said, "We got to do this." And then they just yeah. country countryfied yeah. the heck out of it. Well, I, I think we before we delve too far into all the songs, I think we do need to talk about just the we mentioned it briefly the instrumentation on this album. So it's it's not there's no twelve string Rickenbacker. There's the harmonies are only on the chorus. It's traditional country sort of lead singer. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, standard country solo lead and then harmonies only on the chorus. The piano is significantly more present. There's steel guitar all over this thing. Clar- Clarence White, who I think, J.M., you should talk about him and his yeah. B-bender, uh, is all over this thing. It, the, mm-hmm. the production is really sort of minimalistic because of what it is. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and I think that just it's it's not just that they went country, but they just sort of w- went a direction. I don't think anybody expected them to do. And and the steel guitar player on this particular song, and he's on a couple of other songs, uh, is a guy named Lloyd Green, who, yeah. oddly enough, played. He, I mean, he's played on a lot of stuff, but he played on on Junior's Farm, Farm, the Paul McCartney song. And McCartney <laughs> wa- wanted him to uh, wanted him to tour with him, join join the band and and evidently. Uh, 
Lloyd Green didn't want to give up his gigs in Nashville, so he declined to tour with McCartney. <laughs> yeah, he he was behind. There was Lloyd Green and Sneaky Pete Cleto were probably the two biggest steel players around at the time. And I I heard that they that they somebody wanted to bring Sneaky Pete in oh, and Parsons. Yeah, and uh, yeah, uh, McGowan wouldn't have anything to do with that. He said no. Nah. Yeah, but J- JD Manis, who's on this album, was the guy who replaced. Um, oh God, what's he? He replaced Tom Brumley in oh, Buck yeah. Owens' band. So you yeah. know, he's no one to sneeze at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's nobody here to sneeze. Uh, to no, sneeze it's at. a it's a strong band. Next, yeah. next, we've got a uh, a song called "I Am a Pilgrim." things lead on this which makes sense because he's kind of got the perfect uh vocal uh range for this type of song but gwen actually plays banjo on this song which yeah, is interesting does a, a fine see, job. Uh, that was one of his first real gigs was as a banjo player and and back the, in the his fiddle, folk days the fiddle player on this song and on this on this album is a guy by the name of um john, john Hartford, Hartford. who wrote <laughs> he wrote gentle on my mind <laughs> that big Glenn Campbell, yeah, Glenn Campbell hit. He wrote that song. Uh, yeah, he was one. He's another one of those just very interesting guys from the from Nashville. He was on you know the Smothers Brothers shows back in the yeah. in the early seventies. He was just kind of and he was kind of an eccentric guy. He kind of uh, liked to have people think that he knew all about riverboats and um, he kind of dressed that way with a bowler hat and, and the. Um, the what's the thing I'm looking for? The garter around his yeah, arm, yeah. and well, you know, it, <laughs> we just well, lost the kids when you brought up the smothers. <laughs> what, what's interesting? What's interesting about this song is, uh, you know, it's a traditional sort of Christian hymn, but prior to this, I think it's I think it's kind of a cool thing to talk about some of the DNA in these songs, and, and yeah, because it's interesting. Uh, Bill Monroe recorded this. It was originally. Uh, I Am a Pilgrim was originally uh, kind of popularized by Mole Travis in 1947. And then Bill Monroe recorded it in 58. And then the Oak Ridge Boys, of all people, recorded it uh, in 65. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so it's, yeah, it's fine. It's fine, fine. And then uh, we don't get too far away from the uh, religious songs because we go The Christian Life is Next. Which is a great, fantastic Lubin Brothers song. It great is. Song. It is a. It's a great um, song. What? So this is something that this is a first song. I guess we need to talk about the uh, the lawsuit or the potential lawsuit yeah, that right. happened. 
So uh, originally, um, Graham Parsons sang lead on this song, and uh, he had this other album, as we talked about earlier, from the International Submarine Band called Safe at Home that was released two weeks after he joined the Birds. And the guy who was in charge or who had the contract with them, this guy named Lee Hazelwood, threatened Columbia and threatened to sue Columbia if they kept his vocals on the album. (laughs) For some reason, uh, there are Graham vocals on this album. I'm not sure why, if he was suing them and he owned the rights to his vocals, why some of them got on and some of them got off. I never have quite understood that. But Roger McGuinn overdubbed the vocals on this song. And, um, and does not do it's very tongue-in-cheek and he admits it's very tongue-in-cheek he sang this lead with a kind of sarcasm dripping from his drawl um (laughs) and it it does not sound genuine well it's not genuine and he admits (laughs) i know he's a buddhist or something wasn't it and chris hillman who just really he hated this for the longest time because he in an interview he did with uncut magazine in 2008 he said he found it on the borderline of being offensive the way Roger McGuinn sings this. Well, I, I, I could agree. See. Uh, um, Roger Roger McGuinn had to change his name when he had a religious conversion, and I can't even tell you what Eastern religion it was, but <laughs> he was in that uh, group of um, rockers during the '60s who all went out east and found themselves and found uh, a new religion, and that religion was not. <laughs> one that involved the Christian life. And when he sings it, uh, it, it struck me immediately. The first time I ever heard it is this, this, um, for the most part, this album's very respectful of right. the stuff it's yeah. covering, but on this one, they don't pull it off. Well, and, and we're not going to hear what you said about, um, Hillman. Yeah. And we're not going to get into the versions that Graham's on, but if you seek out the original version that Graham is on, it's significantly more sincere than, yeah. Than, than Roger McGuinn's version, and and we talked about J.D. Manis. He plays uh, he plays steel on this song. Mm-hmm. Um, his I think the uh, the first song he actually plays steel on, and um, Clarence White is on it as well. So you got two guys bending the so, crap out of notes on yeah, this. Tell us yeah. about the tell us about the yeah. uh, guitar. Talk okay, about the so B bender. Yeah, the B bender is one of the more unique instruments in rock. It is a, a it's a guitar looks just like a regular guitar, except there is a contraption under within the body of the guitar that when you pull, push down on the end of the guitar, the guitar strap, uh, there's a spring in the guitar in the nut that holds the guitar strap that actually will bend that note, bend the B string on the, on the guitar. So it gives it this sort of when you play it, you can either you can start with it in the down position and then uh, loosen it when you as it as you uh, remove the pressure from the guitar. And then when you press down, it bends it upwards. So it gives it this kind of steel guitar effect. And it was actually invented. It was the idea of Graham Parsons because he wanted to be able to have that kind of sound in the band. But he knew that Clarence White didn't want to try to spend time learning the pedal steel. And oh, wow. so I didn't. Know so that. yeah, yeah. So Clarence White and he devised that, and uh, I forgot who actually made it for him, but it was their idea. And so I actually, this is, I was in Nashville one time, and I actually, I don't know if I played that one, but I played one, and it's, it is every, it sounds just like a, it really does give you that, um, well, that, that sound it, that tell you uh, that 
of pedal steel sound anyway. And who owns the original? Marty Stewart. Marty Stewart does. Is Marty that right? Stewart. Yeah. When we saw, so Jam and I <laughs> oh, that's saw, right. saw the birds tour. Well, we saw Chris Hillman and Roger McGuinn tour, uh, the anniversary of sweetheart of the radio and, uh, Marty Stewart's band, uh, toured back them up. And Marty Stewart owns the B bender. He is, that guy is a, is a, uh, he's a national well, treasure because he's done he so much to save this kind of stuff. And yeah. so, yeah, he had, he has that B bender. All right. That's a, yeah. that takes us to, you don't miss your water. This is this is kind of the first song on this album that really does that whole blending of R&B and stuff. I mean, this song mm-hmm. was originally uh, written and recorded by a guy named William Bell, who and it was released on Stax Records in 1961. It's kind of Bell's signature song. It was also covered by Otis Redding, and it's on the Otis Blue album, if that <laughs> tells you anything. Uh, so it's a it's a, it's a great really- album. Yeah, it's a rhythm and blues song, but they 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 country it up. This is another one that originally had Graham's vocals on it that McGuinn, you know, overdubbed on them. This to me is what Graham Parsons was trying to do. This song, yeah, uh, it's not my favorite song on this album, but it hits that all those notes he was trying to do. Uh, you know that I think it's this idea of building on the the concept of country being a white man's uh, soul music. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And then he, because he, he did, you know, Parsons did things like this later on when he did, he covered Love Hurts. And, you know, that's a, I can't remember who wrote that song, but that's a kind of a soul standard. Uh, it was also covered by Nazareth, but let's <laughs> move on. <laughs> let's get a move on. I don't know. And Earl, but, uh, I was say Earl Poole Ball's piano playing is great on this. Oh, it uh, is. McGuinn, again, can't quite, can't quite pull, pull the vocals off on this song. He just doesn't have, I, listen, I like Roger McGuinn's voice a lot. He just doesn't quite have the soul to pull to carry this song off the way Graham Parsons could could do it. Well, uh, Graham Parsons make, was not not a great singer by any stretch, but he did have that element to his vocals. It sounded like he felt what he was singing the more. Yeah. Uh, you know, the thing that makes uh, McGuinn so good is that light, clear sound mm-hmm. that lets him float above these songs, and that doesn't work when you're doing the, the numbers. Some of the numbers on here. Uh, yeah. don't, I, uh, you don't miss water. That was particularly uh, hit close to home this past week when most of us, <laughs> most we of all, us went. We all missed went water without water. Yeah, yeah. some of us are still boiling water. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. we're back us to here in uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, what you get for going out to the woods. moving 10, 10 miles outside of Austin. All right, you're still on my mind. And if a broken heart and you're still on my mind so this is is this the first Graham lead we have on the yeah, album the first time he sings that's right yeah and, and it's uh, to me it's the best it's of the the five we've listed so far it's the best I think of the well of the yeah because because everything that that Doug's talked about in terms of the sincerity behind his vocals really works on this this song it a really lot does, yeah um again it's got it's got this 
really cool interplay between J.D. Manis and Earl Poole Ball and the piano yeah. and, the, and the steel. It's just, it really, you know, it's funny to talk about these session musicians when you're talking about the birds. Um, although yeah. one thing we didn't mention is in, when they recorded their first album, I think Roger McGlynn was the only original member of the band that's on that album. The rest of it's all session musicians on their yeah, first, right. first, yeah, on the birds first album. <laughs> I think um, that was the uh, uh, beginning of the wrecking crew that was on that. Oh, yeah. maybe so. Probably yeah, is. This, Graham's lead on this is so good. This was a this was a George Jones song. Uh, that was a B side of a of a the Cold Cold Heart single that he released in '62. And yeah. uh, you know, so Graham being a being a country music lover, and I'm sure Chris Holman as well, they knew obviously knew who George Jones was and wanted to wanted to do a song. So well, yeah, well this this song makes me wish I was at the Broken Spoke too. <laughs> yeah, I mean. He, uh, Graham Parsons could pull off the broken spoke with the oldest, reddest neck in there and they would love him. Yeah. 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 If he showed up in his nudie suit, they'd probably love him more. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I guess in Austin's the only place you could, well, maybe LA, I guess Austin, LA are the only place you could pull off a nudie suit with big marijuana leaf all over yeah, people, people would be able to identify all the drug plants on your suit without, without any trouble the uh the next one uh pretty boy floyd we'll gather and meet children a story i will tell about pretty boy floyd the outlaw Oklahoma knew him well it's a very important song because it talks about the canadian river which <laughs> is a really long river that has hardly any water in it and it flows <laughs> through the uh, texas panhandle and uh i used to spend a lot of time on the canadian river yeah. but uh, not anymore uh, so it cuts the lana estacado right in half and then it goes into oklahoma and apparently uh, that's where our song picks up with pretty pretty boy floyd well, this is another one that Roy Husky plays bass on, and uh, it's kind of a showcase for John Hartford, who we were also speaking about earlier, the, the riverboat gambler. Um, he plays the acoustic guitar and the banjo and the, and fiddle. the fiddle. Yeah, all three. Yeah, <laughs> yeah plays all those. So it, it, and uh, you got Chris Hillman um, playing mandolin. I think this is the first song that he plays mandolin on, yeah. and, on the uh, album. And talking about... Uh, talking about McGuinn's vocals, I think it works really well on this song. Yeah. I I, just, I love his vocals on this one. I think this is the best. Well, who wrote it? Not it. Woody Guthrie. Woody yeah, Guthrie. so he's back. Uh, he's a little bit back into his own um, element with the, yeah. with the Woody Guthrie. Oh, so. Boy, did they bluegrass this song up, though. I mean, they it's, sure did. Uh, it's it's yeah. such it's a really great rendition of it. Um, yeah. You know, McGuinn, McGuinn loved this song, so that may explain why he did such a such a great version singing it you know he just he just really really enjoyed this song a lot yeah all right well you know what that means we got to flip this record over (laughs) and go to side two well for those of you who are listening to a cd unfortunately it's track seven it normally (laughs) six but this time it's seven and we have a tune called hickory wind that we talked about a little bit already Hickory 
what like can that. you say about this song? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm gonna say I think that it's Tony's favorite on the album. Uh, it's not, but but it is again one of those songs that uh, that just hits exactly what Graham Parsons was trying to do. Yeah. It's, I mean, outside, so this song and I'd say uh, Sin City are probably the two songs he's most associated with. Yeah. Um, you know, um, now, who's saying couple- Sin City? Flying Burrito Brothers. There we go. That's the first album, I believe, right? Yeah, the first, it was uh, Gilded Palace of Sin. So uh, Chris Holman yeah. was in that band as well. But those two songs are the ones, I mean, he's, he's associated with a bunch of other songs, but those are the two that really kind of hit hit that Parsons legend. This song's, I, I don't I just don't know what to say. It's so great. It's so sentimental. And uh, the, Parsons' and vocals the, are great on it. And the harmonies are just, you know, Tear jerking. I mean, and the there and it goes. There it is. <laughs> they make you boohoo. They make you boohoo. They're also kind of sophisticated. If you listen to them, there's just a there's some parts where um, I guess it's McGuin playing coming in later, uh, doing some wordless vocals on top of what Parsons singing and uh, Parsons playing piano. And the piano part I think is beautiful on it as well. Um, and uh, Ewan's playing banjo, but it's just a very, very good song that one of my favorite that Parsons ever written. Yeah. Chris Holman said he thought it was a signature song. Uh, yeah. He said, and he, he, he's on record as saying if Graham Parsons never wrote another song other than Hickory Wind, it would have put him on the map. Yeah. It's funny. It's funny that you mentioned him playing the piano, because I don't know if we talked about this, that that was what he was hired to do by Roger <laughs> yeah. McGuinn to yeah. be a piano player <laughs> and, and not take over. And Roger McGlynn's famous, famous quote, I'm probably going to misquote it, but it's something like we hired a piano player, ended up with a, with George Jones in a sequin suit. (laughs) Um, Well, speaking of Graham Parsons, uh, the second track on side two is another one of his numbers. A hundred years from now. Boy, oh boy, again, I think is is has a bit of a disservice done to it by Roger McGuinn going over and singing over the vocals on it. Yeah, but I still this is my favorite song on the album. It's I know a, that it's it, it's it. I know that, that McGuinn sings over it, but uh, it, I think he does, does a fine sound job. The most like the other bird songs to y'all out of the rest yes. of the album. Well, it does. I, I will say this about this song. I think this song and the last one, Hickory, Hickory Wind, are kind of a one-two punch on this album in terms of, in terms of that alt-country DNA that influenced yeah. all these bands that came after it. You can yeah. hear, you can hear Uncle Tupelo. You can hear all these other bands that you know that came. You know the Long Riders. Uh, you know Jason and the Scorchers. All these bands that were trying to do something a little different with a little bit of an attitude to it. Both of those songs are elements of what they did. That DNA is in both of those songs. Um, this song, Hundred Years From Now, and and Hickory Wind. Do you think yeah. the Eagles influenced the birds on this song? Uh, I don't that think does, that they're... does not even merit a response. To <laughs> <laughs> I was they weren't even around some... at this time, were they? But the, I mean, interesting. Some buttons. I thought yeah. the Eagles invented country rock. Am I right? <laughs> but hey, but didn't uh, Graham Parsons and Bernie Leadon play? 
together in the International Submarine Band? Or was that I don't think flying Bernie, burrito boat? Yeah, I know Bernie Leighton was. Yeah, I think it was flying burrito. It wasn't in ISB, but yeah. um, yeah, this also clear, Clarence White's guitar on this is so uh, great. It's God, so it's great. Beautiful. Yeah, it really it's is. That, yeah, and the steel guitar on it is really good. Um, yeah, you know, uh, Lloyd Green yeah. again. Yeah, and a piano part that's not played by Graham Parsons, played by a session guy named Barry Goldberg. Does a fine job though. That up next is the Blue Canadian Rockies. In the Blue Canadian Rockies, spring is silent through the trees, and the golden poppies are blooming round the banks. Hillman sings this one. Yeah, yep. and it's it's a again a perfect. He he seems to know how to pick songs that really are suited to what he does well. And this yeah. is another one of those songs that just fits him really, really, really well. It uh, was it, written by a woman. Yeah, we, yeah we I was need just to, gonna say that. Yeah, we should say who it was written by. Cindy Walker, who is uh, a singer songwriter, but she's also known as a dancer, and I think she uh, was on you know danced in some of those forty early late forties, early fifties kind of, uh, musicals that MGM used to put out, but she's, um, Back and, but America she's, was America. <laughs> but she was a very attractive woman, uh, very, uh, and she was a very prolific writer. She yeah. wrote a whole bunch of songs. Well, and, and I think most famously was tied to the Texas playboys and Bob Wills. I mean, she wrote a bunch of songs that did t- bubbles in my beer as a Cindy Walker song. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, they, that early forties, you know, like what people consider the peak of the Texas playboys, a bunch of their hits were written by her. Yep, and anytime we have an opportunity to talk about Bob Wills, we should. We should. In depth. <laughs> That's right. It's going to be hard to cover one of his albums and pretend it's an album. Right. <laughs> they didn't have that yet. They didn't have um, albums. Next, uh, we finally get Parsons to sing a Merle Haggard song. He wouldn't do it at the opera. <laughs> it's even one about prison. So this yeah. is Instead my of favorite. Sing Me Back Home, we have Life in Prison. And I pray every night for death to come. My life will be a burden every day. This is my favorite song on the album. I, I don't know what it is about having J.D. Manis and Earl Poole Ball play on a song together, but they really, really work really well. Um, yeah. when they're on these songs um, and they're able to interplay. I don't know. You know, I should have done a little research. I don't know if they played together prior to this, but man, yeah, it I just don't. seemed to work really, you know, really well. Yeah. Well, I don't we can know. have a little homework for our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, we started with the Bob Dylan tune at the very beginning of this album. And here at the end of side two, we have another Bob Dylan uh, so nothing was delivered. This. Take care of your health and get plenty of this. Nothing was delivered. That, that does sound like a Bob Will Bob uh, Dylan title. <laughs> yeah, I don't know when this was. Was this ever released by Dylan? I'm sure it's released somewhere, but. 
Um, it it was it was uh, just so you, I just pulled it up real quick. It was released on the basement tapes. It was recorded by Dylan and the uh, band in the fall of 1967. Okay, so I bet it sounds a lot different too. Yeah. <laughs> the um, uh, well, you know they 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 put they bookended this album with Dylan songs because McGuinn, regardless of what they were trying to do with the country stuff, he still wanted it to sound quote unquote contemporary. So he's his his thing was we need to we need to do that. So. You know, the birds associated with doing, uh, you know, electrical version, electrified versions yeah. of Dylan songs. So they they country they did two countryfied versions of Dylan songs and stuck them on either end and of the album. They did electrified versions of Dylan before Dylan did electrified versions of <laughs> Dylan. Is, and it's made all hell break loose that with, is the, folk, with but the, the genuine folk fans. Well, the way the pedal steel introduces this song, I've always been one of my favorite. Introductions oh, yeah, to it's song. great. Yeah, it's great. Um, it's just, yeah. Uh, very it's mournful it's a perfect way to kind yeah. of bring yeah. you into what what this is about this song <laughs> just be good to yourself and get plenty of rest <laughs> i know it sounds it's like not, a jared tall commercial <laughs> no it's not, you know what it sounds like to me it sounds like something right off of american beauty by the dead it's a very yeah. dead lyric. <laughs> it's a pretty good and actually the song kind of would fit on that album too now yeah right? it would it would we got a lot to do before we close out because we can't leave it right here because of what comes next. Uh, we got to talk about uh, the the reason this is the uh, only time Graham Parsons is with the birds. And uh, it has a lot to do with a tour they go on to support this album. And they're in England. And yeah. what happens, Tony? Well, uh, Graham buddies up with the Stones and uh, and the Stones find out that the birds are headed to to do a tour. I don't know if it's a tour or play a couple of nights in South Africa. And uh, and both uh, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger tell Parsons, you don't want to do that. That's awful. Don't go to South Africa. And so they said uh, it was like Mississippi. Yeah. So I don't know if Graham Parsons, you know, there's some conjecture that Graham Parsons just liked. Doug hung, hanging out with the Stones, which is which he yeah. ended up doing a lot anyway. And yeah. so he he, he ended semi- up doing it to the point where uh, Mick Jagger had to get in his face and tell him to sober up and get back with his uh, band. I think yeah. it was the Flying Burrito Brothers at that time. Well, and l- let's not also forget that uh, you know he even though he wasn't a member of the Stones, he he influenced them in a weird way. I mean, I don't know what this yeah. guy, this guy was like voodoo or yeah, something. Apparently you know? he's very charismatic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I mean, he um, ended up doing a cover of uh, uh, Wild, Wild, Horses. Wild Horses, Wild Horses which, is, yeah. which is, I think, so much better than the Stones version. Well, but yeah, I hate the Rolling Stones. Would. Anyway, uh, yeah. So he did. He ended up quitting the band because they weren't. They were not going to not go to South Africa. So he quit the band, left the band in the lurch. They went um, yeah. to South Africa. I forget who they got to replace him. Some guy that could barely play. But it was a roadie. Of, yeah, a resemblance. Was that a roadie? Huh. Um, but they ended up. Uh, yeah, he was in the band for four months and he quit yeah. because they were going to South Africa. Hung, stayed in England, hung out with the Stones. Um, and uh and boy i mean there's also con- some conjecture as to that's why his lyric his vocals were actually stripped off the album both chris hillman and roger mcguinn deny that that's the case and i think that's probably right again i don't know why some are on there and some aren't but i don't think i mean they crosby quit the band or got fired uh, for the, right during the notorious this. 
and he oh, saw, he wanted he, he wanted to play it put triad or, yeah the menage uh, triad song. yeah the menage yeah. god what a terrible um, song it is a terrible song but but they didn't take his they didn't strip his vocals off of that album i believe so I don't, didn't yeah. didn't uh parsons steal crosby's girlfriend I don't know about that. Is that true? <laughs> I think so. I, I'll yeah. confirm that. That's some more homework for our fans at home. Yeah. But but, I, believe I, I believe I heard that. But there was, well, a yeah. whole lot of, there was a whole lot of animosity with the two of them. And I understand that. I mean, he left them in the lurch, right? Um, yeah. Regardless of what, what, whether or not what they were putting judgment on what they were doing. Chris Hillman evidently, well, not evidently, he did. He ended up forgiving Parsons and they ended up forming the Flying Burrito Brothers together and putting out one and a half great albums so right, we go yeah. from we we've got graham parsons going uh hanging out with the stones in a really weird way for a really long time goes back and forms the uh, flying burrito brothers that turned out uh, to be a pretty good band mm-hmm. and then they they get sick of him because he he's just irresponsible and does whatever he wants and uh he he gets kicked out of there can you take it from there so he uh, got the, a recording contract uh, to put out solo albums, and he put out the, uh, what was the first one, Grievous Angel. And well, the first album he did, he was, uh, I wouldn't say he was sober, but he found this uh, singer by the name of Amy Lou Harris. One of the uh, greatest contributions. Yeah, Chris Holman yeah. actually told him she was she was playing folk a folk club or something up in, in the Washington D.C. area that Chris Holman yeah. saw her and, he's, and he actually reached out to Graham and said, "You need to go listen to this this lady sing, yeah, and you need to do it now." And so she joined the band and uh, was a touring member of her and she basically became the uh, music director for the, put a little discipline into the show. Yeah. Put a little discipline in it and she would rehearse the band and everything while Graham Parsons would go off and, you know, be Graham Parsons. And I heard that by the time that it was uh, his, his second album, um, GP, no, I'm sorry, GP was first grievous, uh, uh, grievous Angels. angel was the, was the, second one that was the one where he was a total mess and it was just really difficult to even get him to show up in the studio and so that was largely an emmy lou harris album made with graham parsons singing lead vocal and if he never did anything else bringing emmy lou harris to our music was <laughs> yeah. definitely well, worth it here here's here's what's fascinating about that story is she did not know much about country at all before she yeah. met him it's yeah. so bizarre to think of that again, the weird influence this guy had and what he was yeah. able to do to convince people to go a different direction. Uh, you know, Chris Hillman talking about his, his, uh, uh Graham Parsons sort of, uh, inability to stay focused. Chris Hillman always blamed that on the fact that he was essentially a trust fund kid and he didn't yeah. need, he, he didn't, didn't need, need to, do any- to do this. And so he got bored easily and moved on to yeah. other things. Yeah, I mean, and you know he he's can't, always written limos to pick him up and drive him around before he was yeah. even important enough for a Lincoln Continental. <laughs> <laughs> and the other, uh, his dad died an alcoholic, uh, died yeah. of alcoholism, and his mom was just a raging alcoholic as well. And she married uh, some guy with you know Grand Parsons' stepdad. And there, I don't know. There's some uh, if you watch the documentary and read some of the the books, it's there's some. Uh, 
her weird demise. That, weird happened. Yeah, some weird things about her demise. And his uh, father was a World War Two ace. Yeah, uh, ace pilot. Hero yeah. yeah. Who also drank a lot. A um, <laughs> lot of lot of drinking and yeah. uh, substance abuse. And there's a story yeah. for the kids here, Tony. What <laughs> substance abuse ended Graham Parsons' life at 26 years old. And uh, where was he? He was in Joshua Tree, California. A place he where he loved to hang out. Yeah. And uh, he OD'd. He OD'd. And then, unfortunately, someone attempted to steal his body. Well, I thought uh, they were successfully he a, stole his body. I, yeah, I think it was attempted and succeeded. Uh, it was his touring manager or his uh, road manager. Yeah, road manager. And Did they actually do it and set it on fire? On the yeah, they yeah. said his body was actually set on fire at, at, ja they, uh, at Joshua Tree National. It was Park. at the airport waiting to go back to uh, New Orleans oh, where his right, family was right. living. And the guy walks in there acting like he's a big shot with a clipboard and says, "Yeah, we we've just we got a private flight for this." Gets the casket, takes it to Joshua Tree, uh, pulls off on the side of the road, throws the casket out, and uh, <laughs> he's drunk, by takes the way. His body. He's been drunk yeah. the whole time. Pours gasoline all over the body and burns it and has a toast. And he <laughs> claims that they had an agreement that if either one of them died, that's how they yeah. wanted. They didn't want to go back with uh, the suits and do a traditional funeral. So, yeah. You know, getting your getting yourself burned in a coffin in Joshua Tree <laughs> is the kind of thing some people just love. Uh, reminds me of the people who like Hunter S. Thompson and all that wild kind of stuff. <laughs> they just love that part of Graham yeah. Parsons' legend. I, I, yeah, I think it's I think it's sad because yeah. this guy this guy was such. I mean, if you look at what he did and how much he influenced music. Mm -hmm in the short time he was around yeah. just imagine what he could have done had he straightened up and actually, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's, it sounds real cool and everything when you're reading a rock and roll account of it and us those free money. But when you watch his family interviewed about their, their never got brother, to say goodbye to him. Never got to I say mean, goodbye. It's, it's really, really inappropriate. And the, it's and the guy that did it yeah. still thinks he's, Joe Cool, yeah, done such a thing, but well, and he, uh, you know, he was he was arrested, but do you know what he was arrested for? Littering, stealing a casket. Uh -huh. There's no law in uh, California at the time about desecrating a body. So anyway, <laughs> that's the that's the end of the Graham Parsons birds combination, which was enormously successful. Hugely influential. I, I joked about the Eagles, but that whole Southern California thing, uh, Laurel, Laurel Canyon, Canyon. Laurel Canyon, uh, Southern California thing. I, yeah. I think bands like uh, Buffalo Springfield, uh, Poco, yeah, the Eagles, Manassas, pure, yeah, Pure Prairie well, League. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's a shame to have to throw the Eagles on. Uh, as as a result of Graham Parsons, but you're true. <laughs> but let's not let's not forget there were things like uh, like American Beauty by the Grateful Dead. I mean that came out in yep. 1970. You can't. Yeah. So this album, we talk about it. 
because it's so influential and it's gained uh again this is one of those albums that we talk about that's gained its its notoriety and its and its fame and its influence after the fact when this album came mm-hmm. out it was not we had another one like it. that tony You're talking about odyssey and oracle yeah yeah exactly. so this has something in common with three albums now but uh, but it, but yeah, and it influenced, all, and it's still influencing people. Like we talked about in the early late late eighties, late eighties, early nineties, there was that whole movement started by Uncle Tupelo that sort of brought this to the forefront, and all the bands that came out of that were influenced by oh, yeah. this. Um, and bands yeah, you in see, the eighties, uh, you know, yeah, Wilco had their uh, nudie suit era, so uh, bringing nudie suits fondly. back, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh. Yeah, so it's it's really kind of a, an incredible story. Um, you know, the fact that they were able to tour this album a year and a half ago on the anniversary and sell out and just have huge crowds of people, you know, appreciate it. I'm sure meant a lot to to Chris Holman. I don't know how you know McGuinn. I think after the fact appreciated what they did, but I think at the time he, I think he was a little caught off guard by yeah yeah it seems and, like that it seems like he may have been busy doing something else maybe he had a <laughs> podcast that took him away from his regular job <laughs> yeah well it's a great album and Dude. i'm gonna say something that uh tony will disagree with i think that was their plane wreck album uh <laughs> we haven't used that term yet but that's a term i use frequently for an album where <laughs> If they had all died in a plane wreck after the album, uh, they would have uh, gone down at the peak. <laughs> now, I, I say that about the birds. I won't say that about Graham Parsons. But, um, Do, yeah. Tony, you can go ahead and rebuke that. No, no, no. It's, I mean, I, 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 they, de- they, they never were quite the same. Uh, I mean, McGuinn's the only original guy, and regardless of who he has – yeah. in the band backing him up and he had some pretty great people backing him up um you know it, it was never quite the same uh band um as it was after this album i do think we need to talk about the cover you're right oh, yeah i i brought that up earlier because uh if you buy vinyl one of the great things about vinyl compared to downloading music or cds is the album cover and they used to put a lot of effort into it and and uh sweetheart of the rodeo is one of the greatest album covers one of my favorite of all time tony tell the kids about this album cover (laughs) well it's it's based on a on a uh, advertising a poster that was developed by a uh a uruguayan artist named joe mora uh i think it was i think he did it in the in the thirties or the forties. Yeah. Um, it was late thirties. Yeah. And he, and, and it was used for a Levi's jeans ad in 1965, which is likely where the birds saw it. Um, the, the, the cover of the album was just a small element. If you look at the poster, I think the poster is called the American cowboy rodeo. And it's kind of a history of the rodeo in a, in a weird kind of art way. Um, and that, that, that image on the cover of sweetheart of the rodeo is at the kind of the center top of that, of that image but it's it's um it doesn't dominate the image i mean it's there but it does not dominate the image but that's where it's from um but you're right doug it's such an iconic uh piece of artwork i i there's not another birds album that 
that you, that has Looks an nothing cover. like a bird's. Most of them have pictures of the birds on the yeah. cover. Yeah, yeah, and none of them, and they're all un, they're all forgettable. This is not mm. a forgettable album no. at all. Yeah, I would, cover at all. I would love to have that full poster. I, yeah, I, that would be mm. really cool. Well, um, Tony. Yes, sir. Usually about this time, you have something for the young people out in our audience. I, I have something tonight if you'd like to hear. <laughs> well, I was hoping so. Uh, yeah, this just seemed like a natural thing to, to talk about, which was uh, Chris Hillman's last solo album called Biting, Biting My Time. Uh, it was released, I believe, in 2017. I could be wrong about that. But uh, it was produced by Tom Petty. It was the last, I believe, the last thing he ever played on, uh, yep. Tom Petty played on. Um, it's, it's um, you know, Chris Holman, when he left, when he, I mean, Chris Holman never gave up on country music. He was in a band called, um, uh, called the Desert Rose Band. Um, most of his solo stuff is really heavily country uh, oriented. And this album, while not it's a little of a, a bit of a mixed bag, but not in a bad way. There's definitely country songs on it. Um, he does a he does a great version of a song called "Here She Comes Again," which is a song that he and Roger McGuinn did. thing that happened in the 70s where, where people that played together in the 60s would get together and do albums together so McGuinn and Hillman yeah. did albums together uh and uh you know um uh Jerry Garcia and, and uh um David Grisman and then you had new writers of the Cert Purple Sage I mean these guys were everywhere yeah, but they would they would get together and do these kind of one or two off albums where they would just co-write songs together and play together, but it wasn't a quote unquote reunion or whatever. Mm. So this uh anyway, that was a song written by uh, McGuinn and, and Hillman in seventy-nine on that album. Uh Tom um Tom Petty does a uh a, a, a you know, kind of a signature twelve string solo on it, which is really good. Uh my favorite song in the album is called When I Get a Little Money, which is just a simple little song, but it's really heartfelt, really beautiful. Chris Hillman's vocals on it are great. Um, and then there's it ends with a cover of, of Tom Petty's Wildflowers, which is r fantastic as well. Um, so anyway, I, it's worth checking out. If you're a fan of this stuff, you'll like it. I, if you're a fan of stuff, you may already own it. But if you don't, check it out. Well, that's it for tonight's show. Thanks for listening. Next week, we're going to be taking a look at another monster album from a British band, the 1967 album Days of Future Past by the Moody Blues. Nights in white satin Never reaching the end Letters of we're at Twitter at Tapping Vinyl. And you can email us at tappingvinyl at gmail.com. For our host, Doug Cooper, our co-host, Tony Slagle, and me, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, your humble producer, this is Vinyl Tap, where all the podcasts go to 11. And remember, you ain't going nowhere. <laughs> <laughs>